Anybody ever had to put together a sermon on the topic of suffering while they're having a blowout fight with their wife at home? Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> well, that was my experience this week. Not my wife's fault. But I figure you guys should at least know what's going on in the life of your pastor so that if the sermon doesn't land today, at least you'll kind of have an informed backdrop of potentially why. But we're going to do what we came here to do. We're going to open up the Word of God. We're going to read the Word of God together. We're going to study the Word of God together. And we're going to be changed by the Word of God because the Spirit is alive and on the move in our midst. Amen? Amen. All right, so it doesn't matter what happened. What matters is what's going on right now. My wife would say what happened matters, but that's for her and I to talk about. <laughs> We're in a series on 1 Peter. And we do this, you know, this little quick recap every time, and I thought, how do we change it up? Maybe we just ask some questions. What is 1 Peter? Some people would say it's a letter. Other, people's, other people would say it's an epistle. Smart people would say, you know, it's one of those general letters that Peter wrote to multiple church locations because he wrote to five different Roman provinces, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia. Some people might say, well, the church was suffering. That was the occasion that caused Peter to write it. They needed encouragement. They needed to be reminded of the hope that they had in Christ because of the finished work that he had accomplished in his life and ministry. All of these answers would be acceptable answers to what is 1 Peter. We're not looking for an exhaustive list. We're looking for adjectives, a descriptive list of what the letter is. Because it is something different to each of us. Although Peter had an intention, that's what we're after. Although the audience had an understanding and we want to know that. Each of us are going to read the letter and our life experience is going to inform our understanding of it to some degree. Which is why we need to come together and study the Bible together so that our experience doesn't trump the author's intention. So that our experience and what we think based on how we've lived doesn't trump the audience's understanding. And so that we get after that because that's what the heart of God inspired. And once we know that, Boom, we're off to the races and we can work out our applications on a case-by-case -case basis. Who wants to be changed? I do. I do not want to be the same person that I am today, tomorrow. The greatest indictment against a Christian is that you are the same person that you have been for years. Because God is not just in the business of reconciling and rescuing and redeeming. He's in the business of transforming. And if you're not here to be transformed, you're in the wrong place. We're not just here to check a box this morning. We're here to exalt the name of Jesus. Amen? So let's turn our eyes to the text and let's set our focus on the Master. We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be covering verses 1-6. through 6. Peter begins in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing for what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will, yes they will, give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. We're coming off the back of an intense sermon that we did last week where we covered multiple different ways to interpret the text because no one has cornered the market on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18-22. through 22. So we navigated our way through multiple different ways to view the text and now we're here. 
In her commentary on 1 Peter, which is very helpful, New Testament scholar Karen Jobes points out that Peter's primary objective in this section of the letter is to graciously and lovingly remind his readers of though uh, to remind his readers that they are in Christ. So what does that mean? That means that the central focus of Peter in this aspect of the letter is that his audience know who and what they are grounded in. Do we, church, know who and what we are grounded in? Because previously, Peter called us to prepare ourselves to give what? A defense. For what? For the hope that lies within. Peter's saying, don't forget where you came from, but more importantly, remember who you are right now. In Christ. Remember who you are. How the Spirit has changed you, and He's still changing you. New life in Christ gives birth to a whole new worldview. And it's Peter's hope that this new way of seeing might inspire them to pursue holiness in every aspect of their life. Previously in the letter, Peter wrote, Be holy in all of your conduct, for I am holy. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's quoting Torah. He's reaching back into Leviticus. And he's telling the early church, Do this. Be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, Peter would say, in your co-centric circles where you have influence, be species unique. Be different. Your life, what you think, what you do, how you talk, be species unique. Be set apart from the community that you operate in. Not to the degree that you're not involved, but but to the degree that when they see you, they're like, wow, he's different. She's different. Our desire to be species unique should reflect the reality that God is species unique in the midst of the heavenly host. God is Elohim. Not all Elohim are Yahweh. Peter's secondary objective is to encourage the early church that they can both withstand and overcome persecution just as Christ did. These are very important terms for the Christian. Do you want to withstand persecution? Do you want to endure and overcome suffering? We live in America, so we don't really know what it means to suffer. And everybody just got angry. You're marginalizing my life experience. No, I'm not. I'm not even making a comparison. I'm stating a truth claim. The homeless in America live better than 80% of people in third world countries. So it's not my opinion. It's a factual statistic that's backed by actual data. (laughs) Our first world problems. Are we able to withstand and are we ready to overcome the persecution? I don't like that term, persecution. We should say suffering harm because everyone in the room is open to suffering harm. But not everyone in the room experiences persecution. It's all about language. Words are important because they have meaning. What does it mean to withstand and overcome? Well, how about we set our eyes on Jesus? Let's do that. How does Peter talk about overcoming? How does Peter talk about standing fast? Standing firm? Well, he would say, Christ in His life and ministry suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that He might bring us to God. So why did Christ suffer? Well, He suffered vicariously on your behalf because you're a sinner just like me. What did his suffering accomplish? It accomplished reconciling us back to God, allowing us to be in right relationship with him because our relationship was severed by the sin that we commit. How did he suffer? He suffered in his body. He was crucified to a wood cross where he died. 
Three days later, he was raised to newness of life by the power of the Spirit. We would say he was raised to newness of life by the power of the Spirit because we know he was physically raised and his resurrection body bore the marks that he earned. The marks that he acquired in his human body during his life and his ministry. He ascended. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. And because he ascended through the heavens and because he was exalted... All angels, powers, and authorities have been subject to Him. That's the close of 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're in the opening of 1 Peter chapter 4. How do we withstand? How do we overcome? Well, if Christ was able to overcome death, and my future is His future, now I have some hope. I better arm myself with this understanding. If I don't know the Gospel, when the suck hits the fan... I'm going to have nothing. So with all of this, on the forefront of our minds, do I, am I persecuted? Do I suffer? What is the gospel? How do I have hope? I don't know how to withstand. Should I hold fast? With all of this on the forefront of our minds, I need everybody to read this passage. having bookended the previous section of his letter with the glorious results of Christ's suffering and triumph over death. What we just rehearsed, the goodness of the gospel of God, Peter now instructs his loved ones to arm themselves with the attitude that suffering is inescapable. Remember last week, Thomas Schreiner, he informed our learning. Suffering is the pathway to glory. You don't agree? Well, as a Christian, you must look to the example of the Master to identify with Him if you want to be in solidarity with Him. If He suffered, then we should suffer. Katya asked a great question. Why is it always about suffering? And I was like, ah, oh, we need to nuance this. We need to nuance frequency and intensity. Christ did not always suffer. But when He did, He suffered intensively. When we suffer, it feels very intense. So it's not about the frequency, it's about the intensity. So Peter instructs his loved ones to arm themselves with the attitude that suffering is inescapable. How many of us know that the reality of chapter 4, what we're going to read today, is not new to the mind of the author, it's not new to the letter, and it's not new to the text of Scripture? To prove this claim, I'm going to need someone to stand up and read 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 21. Somebody stand up and read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. When you got it and you stand up, let Brent get to you so he can film you reading. Hmm. How many times have we gone over this? Thank you, Deb. That when you read the word you in this letter, we have to think plurally. We said it earlier. Peter wrote this letter to multiple church sites in five different Roman provinces. So you is not singular. Peter does not have you in mind. He doesn't have me in mind. He doesn't have one person in mind. He has the bride of Christ in mind. And he says, for to this you have been called. Well, what have we been called to, church? Follow in the steps of Jesus. Well, what did his life and ministry look like? Well, he suffered. Who did he suffer for? He suffered for you plurally. He left us in his life and ministry an example. Our life should trace the lines on the paper of his life. It appears that our author is committed to the idea that the life and ministry of Jesus provides both the blueprint and the basis for his followers. Raise your hand if you're an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, same here. If he were here in the flesh, we would call him rabbi, teacher. Because he's an Israelite from the line of Judah. 
It's our responsibility, guys. We got to know this stuff. We have to understand this stuff and we have to proclaim this stuff. Willful ignorance and naivete, willful ignorance and naivete, they're not acceptable excuses. I just didn't know. That's not an acceptable excuse. Now, Kendall said it today. Our lack of understanding doesn't thwart the Spirit, but we don't step into the realm that because my lack of understanding doesn't thwart the Spirit, that I'll just stay in the realm where I lack understanding. Don't do that. This is why Peter writes, arm yourselves, church. We talked about it. He said, be prepared to give a defense. Be armed. Take off and put on is the language of Peter. Be armed. I wonder if Peter had the words of the Old Testament prophet in mind when he penned this section of the letter. Do we know what Hosea says? He says, my people are destroyed for a lack of what? Knowledge. I wonder if the backdrop of what Peter is thinking as he's penning this letter is this, is the words of the prophets of Israel. My people, God's people, are destroyed for what? A lack of knowledge. Do you want to be destroyed? Well, then ignorance and naivete are not okay. (laughs) Saints, we're compared to soldiers. And we stand on the spiritual battlefield every time our feet hit the floor, right, Brandon? We better be prepared and preparing for battle constantly. If not, we will not be ready for whatever comes our way. How many of us know and actually believe, embrace the reality that God requires something of us? Raise your hand if you know that God requires something of you. Peter seems to argue that because of Christ's death, those who decided to become Christians, they cannot, they must not continue to live the rest of their earthly lives as they did in the past. For Peter, that would be unacceptable. Which means for Jesus, it would be unacceptable. Which means for us, it must be unacceptable. Now before we move on, we're going to have to deal with this strange passage in the closing statement of verse 1. However, I'm not sure it's possible to read the closing statement in the end of verse 1 in isolation from verse 2. So can you guys read this next slide for me, please? The more literal translations in English seem to force us to ask the question, is Peter, the apostle of Jesus, an advocate of sinless perfectionism? Is he arguing that we cease in this life from sinning? Is that what it says? Now we don't have time to wade through the different interpretations of this closing line. And there are some very good and some very interesting ones. So I'm just going to argue against the idea that Peter would advocate for something so irrational as the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. When we look at the passage in its greater context, it seems more plausible that verse 1 communicates the reality that those who choose to suffer on account of their faith are the same people who have already forsaken the idea of embracing sinful behavior, sinful behavior, and therefore they are done with sin. They're not done sinning. They're done with sin. It's no longer the dominating power in their life. I got this from Kendall. We need to stop saying, I'm just a sinner who's been saved by grace. I'm just a sinner who's been saved by grace. We need to stop saying that. We need to start saying, I was a sinner. And by the grace of God, I've been made a saint. 
Is the old man dead? Yes or no? Were you put to death in a death like Christ? Were you raised to newness of life in a life like Christ? Whom the Son sets free, is he actually free indeed? Or are you still a sinner? Saint has no moral connotation in the Greek. It's a status. Made new. Behold, I am making all things new. Are you a part of the recreation or not? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I can't stop watching porn. I can't quit cheating on my wife. I can't stop doing drugs. I can't stop drinking because I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're just a sinner who needs God. And you know how I know? Because I once was, and I haven't forgotten where I came from, but by the grace of God, through faith in what He did, nothing that I've done, I've been made new, I'm continuing to be transformed, and I'll still have a gift when I stand before Him and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. New name, new body, welcome into the rest. Do we have hope or not? Yes. Who are you loyal to? Are you a son of your father, the devil? Or are you a son of the Creator? We say it all the time around here. When I was justified, I was set free from the power of sin. Through my process of sanctification, I came to understand I was no longer under the penalty of sin. And I long for the day when I will experience to be free from the presence of sin. Penalty and power have been dealt with. New life in Christ. If verse 2 functions as the explanatory power which frames our answer, then we might say something like, being done with sin is more about the rejection of it as a viable option as opposed to the state of sinless perfectionism, at least on this side of fraternity. Dennis Edwards notes that the result of being done with sin is grounded on the basis that we desire to pursue the will of God over human lust. That is so good. Ceased from sin, no longer pursuing human passions. Not ceased from sinning, but dominated by the will of God. That's how we read the Bible around here. Amen. Dr. Keener writes that once we reckon our lives as forfeit for the sake of Christ, we cannot live in pursuit of other values. If you are here today and you are living in pursuit of other values, you don't need me to tell you that. You know. Stand before the mirror. Because seeing dimly is better than not seeing at all. The one who is truly prepared to die for Christ, that's the one that needs to choose to live for him. Dying's easy. <laughs> is Christ living for you right now? Is he seated at the right hand of the throne? Is he mediating and interceding? If he's living for you, the least we can do is live for him. Or stop telling people that you're a Christian. Don't mar the name and the bride of Christ. Just go do what you want. I won't be mad at you. I'll actually pray for you. And when you return and you learn not to blaspheme, I'll ask that you would pray for me. A few minutes ago, I asked how many of us know and believe that God requires something of us. According to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, the positive consequence of ceasing from sin is a life governed by the will of God. In answering the question, what does God require from us? The proper response is everything. Everything. Tim Keller says, you don't sell a house and maintain a room in it. You either sell the whole thing or you don't. <laughs> Nobody sells a home to somebody and comes back two weeks later and goes, I just want to chill in my room. The proper response is everything, saints. 
Once again, to prove this, we're going to look at the words of the Master Himself. Somebody stand up and read Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 25. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 25. Twenty-four and twenty-five. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus has spoken, everybody. Unless you're like Bart Ehrman and you think that he's been misquoted, I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> BT Doves, have we already forgotten that we've been called to follow in his footsteps? <laughs> Let me be absolutely clear here. Jesus is not asking us to embrace anything that he himself has not already demonstrated. Recall the words of the master in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba! Father, if it be possible, and with you all things are possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will in my humanity, but as you will as the sovereign ruler. For those of us who are in the house today, we're going after it today. I don't know if you can tell by my tone or my language. But we're getting it today. <laughs> and if you're in the house, we love you. Amen. And we're no better than you. Amen. In fact, five minutes with my wife and she'll tell you how much more worse I am than you. <laughs> and she has integrity and she would speak truthfully. Like yeah. For those of us who are in the house today who claim the name of Christ and continue to live a life dominated by human passions, I'm here to challenge the reality that you may not be in right relationship with God. That's for you to consider. For those of us who are in the house today who have fallen prey to the lie that God requires nothing of us, I'm here to challenge the idea that you may be in right relationship with God. For those of us who embrace the myth that I can both come and remain as I am, I think Peter wrote these next verses for you. So let's read them together. Let's go. Go ahead, guys. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 functions as the doctrinal wrecking ball to the fairy tale that God requires nothing of us. Just read this in the greater context of what we're reading in its entirety today and then step back and read it in the context of the letter and then step back and read it in the context of the Gospels and then step back and read it in the context of the prophets. You don't even have to read the whole Bible. Just those three literary genres. It's the doctrinal wrecking ball to the fairy tale that God requires nothing of us because he requires everything. Alan Stibbs identifies a categorical divide in regard to the earthly life of the Christian. Category A equals the time past. That which is descriptive of our lives prior to our conversion, my wife would call these her BC days before Christ. Category B is the rest of our time on earth, that which is descriptive of our lives post-conversion. Now, Alan Stibbs goes on to say that we ought not to use the latter period doing things characteristic of the former period. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that Peter rather sarcastically points out that whatever time was spent in category A doing what the pagans wished to do, well, that life 
For the Christian, that life has consumed more than enough time. Peter is very matter-of-fact in regard to the former life. Don't listen to me, let's listen to him. Chapter 1, Peter writes, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Raise your hand if you want to live your life in willful formal, uh, former ignorance. No. Okay, I didn't think so. Just four verses later, he reminds his readers that they were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Now I want you to think with me. You're in the first century, in the Near East or in the Middle East. You're in an honor-shame dominated culture and you're making statements about the feudal ways of the forefathers. <laughs> How do you think Peter's words are going to be received and accepted? You think he's getting any likes on Twitter? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, he's been canceled. Now in chapter 2, Peter writes that we are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says, once we were a people shown no mercy... However, now we are God's people. When we're reading the Bible, do we hear it? When we're reading the Bible, do we see it? Categorical distinctions. The time past versus the rest of our time on earth. I just gave you descriptors using Peter's language. AC squared, somebody's got to ask the question. In our lives... Are we guilty of reflecting a clear categorical distinction between what once was and what is now? And my prayer is that God, I hope so. Guilty of what? Are we guilty of reflecting a clear categorical distinction between what was once was and what is now? That's what we want. Yeah. Are we guilty of reflecting that? The clear categorical distinction. They exist, and the apostle is dealing with them in his letter. Peter says, do not live a life dominated by sensuality. We're about to define terminology because words have meaning. We're about to go to the greatest source, I believe, that exists to do it. Because we need to know what we're talking about. Right? Peter says, do not live a life dominated by sensuality. Don't participate in sensuality. Well, the question is, what is sensuality? How do you define sensuality? I don't care how you define it, and you shouldn't care how I define it. You should care how God defines it. We actually have to know what it is so that we can avoid being overcome by it. Now, B-Dag. Bauer, Danker, Artie Ginrich. This is the gold standard in, in Christian and secular academia when it comes to Christian literature and the literature that surrounds Christian literature. So anything written in Greek, <laughs> this is your gold standard lexicon. BDAG defines sensuality as a lack of self-constraint. One who is given over to sensuality knows how to pervert that which is good into licentiousness. The one who is lacking self-constraint interprets divine goodness as an opportunity to ignore God and do what they please. If we want to move beyond a first century definition in the Greek language, then we need to understand from our modern viewpoint what licentious behavior is. In the English language, the term is descriptive of A, the sexually unrestrained, B, those who are unrestrained by law or general morality, and C, those who make a practice of going beyond customary bounds and limits. All three of these definitions are viable, and we're going to come back to how this works its way out throughout the entire vice list. The very first term utilized by the apostle communicates the reality that a life marked by sensuality is a life dominated by a lack of self-control. What does Peter do? He says, don't live this way. Peter says, don't be dominated by passions. 
BDAG defines this term as a desire for something forbidden, something off limits. It may be connected to lust, and it most likely is in the viceless setting, whether it be internal to the text of Scripture or external to secular philosophy. However, it may also be descriptive of the foolish desires that ruled over us formerly. Sound familiar? Peter says, when we were ignorant. Bedag says, when we were ignorant. In the greater context of the letter, Peter instructs us to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our entire beings, our souls. We must not be dominated by our passions or desires. Instead, we are to keep our conduct among the pagans honorable, Peter says. Peter says, do not live a life dominated by drunkenness. BDAG defines this term, are you ready? As drunkenness. <laughs> it's pretty self-explanatory, saints. Do not relinquish control of your mind or body to substance. Intoxication is sinful. Rather be dominated. We are to remain in control, i.e. exercise responsibility at all times. So for those of us who consume alcohol, do it responsibly. That's what the Word of God would give you, guidance-wise. The next two terms in Peter's vice list just so happen to be orgies and drinking parties. Everybody think they were going to show up to church today and talk about orgies? You never know. I mean, if you were reading ahead in our Bible study, then you'd be like, oh, I wonder how Matt's going to tackle that one. <laughs> I'm going to tackle it the same way we tackled the other terms. We're going to go to the source. BDAG defines orgies as excessive feasting, carousing, and or revelry. Keep your eye on carousing and revelry in the English definitions in the bottom. And look at how it, is trans how it transposes in the English. Well, it defines drinking parties as social gatherings where wine was served. Now, I've been to some social gatherings where wine was served and consumed wine. I've done it with people in this room. But there's a distinction. Historically speaking, it was customary for pseudo-intellectuals of all class and caste levels to host banquets, whatever their budgets could afford. And it was at these events that participants would get well lubricated with wine, is what BDAG says. I.e., they would give in to drunkenness. There's a connection to another term that already preceded this one in the list. Hmm. Saints, we need to be able to frame these terms in their historical context. If we truly desire to understand why Peter included these terms in his vice list. If you want an ancient Near Eastern pagan perspective, read Esther chapter 1. You want an ancient Near Eastern pagan perspective, read Daniel chapter 5 verse 1 through 4. You want a Second Temple era perspective? Read 2 Maccabees chapter 6, verse 1 through 11 and put an emphasis on verse 4. You know what? As a matter of fact, let's just read 2 Maccabees since we're good Protestants. Go. <laughs> it's going to give us a flavor of what's actually being described by the Apostle. For the temple, here we go. For the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. Let's think about this historically for a little bit. Okay, let's be critical in our approach to the text. The Maccabees is an intertestamental writing written in Greek. Peter is a first century writing written in Greek. So can we identify any terms that Peter might use? Hmm, Gentiles, debauchery, reveling. This is really a bad English translation. It should be translated pagan nations, but I'll go with Gentiles, okay? These pagan nations came to Jerusalem. They violated the sacred space of the temple because they had no care for customary rules and laws. Hmm, I think we talked about that. The temple 
was filled with debauchery and reveling by these pagans who dallied with whores and had intercourse with women. By the way, prostitutes is a neutral term. Male prostitutes exist in cult practice as well, pagan cult practice. And they did this within the Holy of Holies. Utter disregard. And besides, brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. You ever heard of the abomination of desolation? You know that the Greeks thought it would be funny to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple of the Jews. Not even a Christian today would try to serve a Muslim bacon. Why? Because we have more honor than that. We're not going to look to belittle those who we believe are enslaved to a doctrine of demons. We're going to look to evangelize them, which means we need to love them as our neighbor. And you're not going to do that if you're doing these types of things in their sacred spaces. (laughs) When we read the text historically with external sources, it helps us understand what's going on in the text of Scripture. This is why we say the literature is not inspired, however it is helpful. What I find so thought-provoking is that the one thing that connects all of these terms, literally the tie that binds, is the final thing that's named in the list. Lawless idolatry. BDAG defines this expression as the disgusting practice of image worship. As modern students, we must consider polytheistic cult practices, both historically and in modernity. They're still sacrificing chickens in Anchorage. You know how I know? Because we sell our roosters to the Hmong community. They're the ones who are legally allowed to make blood sacrifice still. So don't act like it ain't happening in your own backyard, church. The question is, do you even care? One of these days, I'm going to have a conversation with how there's no more need to pour out the blood of a rooster because the blood of Jesus has been poured out. And that's going to be the time when I'm like, thank you, Lord, for bringing this mong person into my life. He's going to do it through me selling him the means of his idolatry. Be all things to all people so that you might win one, even one, to Christ. For those of us who were paying close attention, we may have noticed an artful arrangement in the terms that Peter has in play here. Three of the terms have sexual overtones in the context of the vice list, sensuality, desires, and orgies, while two are connected with the overindulgence of alcohol. The final term in the list sets the greater context, the overarching umbrella for these terms which describe kinds of behaviors which were not only practiced but welcomed in pagan cultic practice. Peter's very clear. As spirit-filled believers, we are not to be dominated by anything that's mentioned in verse 3. Why? Because the time for this type of behavior is past. Amen? Amen. By the grace of God, I hope and I hope that we pray that the rest of our time on earth will be dominated by the pursuit of God's will over and above any human desire. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? New Testament scholar David, uh, Peter David's notes that the Christian's unconverted neighbors, because that's who he's talking about here, i.e. the pagan Gentiles, the ethnos, the nations, they would be quick to notice the change in lifestyle and that this change would be something that they could not comprehend. You could argue that they wouldn't comprehend it culturally or you could argue that they couldn't comprehend it because they were enslaved to their sin nature. Or you could just say it's probably a little bit of both. (laughs) The statement begs the question, though, how would they notice? Right? How would they notice? Well, 
Once again, we're going to source the work of Karen Jobes, who teaches us that the pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained was the popular forms of Greco-Roman entertainment. A, the theater, because of its risque performances. B, the chariot races. C, pagan festivals. And D, gladiator contests, because of their blood and gore. The gladiator contests would soon become the grounds for the slaughter of many martyrs. So the very thing they didn't attend voluntarily, they were forced to attend at the cost of their lives. I want you to imagine a tight-knit group of family and friends. And I want you to imagine that all of a sudden one of the families or one of the friends just stops showing up. No more participation in any of the previously mentioned events, not only that, but they've also stopped showing up to all the house parties. No more family gatherings. I can hear it now, can't you? What do you mean when you say you're not going to join in on the festivities? We've run together our whole lives. We've clicked up. You're the homie. Our whole lives we've done this thing, and now you're just not going to show up? Of course they would be surprised. Peter says they're going to be astonished when you don't join in with them. Ask yourselves in general, how do you think people are going to respond in the first century? Keep in mind, honor shame, Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern, communal culture, not individualism. How are they going to react? Peter says they malign you. Literally, they blaspheme you. They speak evil. All of a sudden, you think you're better than us? Well, you got saved? Whatever that means. There's some spirit that's living in you and he's always present and he doesn't want you to participate because you're going to grieve him somehow. Some God, some all-powerful God who's grieved by you lowly human being. We've got to ask ourselves. What would life be like for someone who had to wake up daily in this environment? Daryl Charles observes that any refusal, any resistance to participation in the hedonistic lifestyle of the pagan Greco-Roman culture would provoke anger and resentment. There's your word, Leslie, provoke. Oh, you're not going to be here? Well, that kind of pisses me off because my interpretation of that is that you think you're better than me. You think you're better than all of us. Are you prepared to give the defense for the hope that lies within when faced with that? Amen. Is that, are we grateful? Do we desire to be in step with those who suffered for the name of Christ? Or do we just want to cruise through life? I mean, God is going to take it up with you, not me. <laughs> I'm just asking you to consider that reality. In the first century, the church's refusal to take part in social situations involving idolatry, immoral behavior... Well, this refusal, it earned them the reputation as haters of humanity. They were viewed as politically disloyal and they were seen as an abnormal community. They were the people who eat and drink the flesh and blood of their Savior and they do it in the catacombs. Pliny would write to Emperor Trajan about this. How do I deal with this upstart new religion? 
easy. Put them before Caesar's altar. Tell them to put their pinch of incense on it and to claim worship to him as divine. And if he doesn't do it, stick him in the Colosseum. That's how you deal with it. They want to talk about it. Let's see if they're actually going to be about it. That was their life every day. Master's going to send me to the marketplace. If I refuse, will this be the last time? For this decision that they made on the behalf of the name of the master, they were blasphemed. In the defamation of God's people, the pagan community would by proxy be defaming God himself. An act for which there are great consequences. Can you guys read this for me, please? Now this is called a mirrorism. And a mirrorism is like opposites. Alpha and omega, for better or worse. You know, that's a mirrorism. He's the judge of the living and the dead. They're all over the text of Scripture. Now, this mirrorism indicates the universal scope of God's purview. Nothing is outside of his reach. Isaiah would say, nothing is outside of the reach of the righteous right arm of Yahweh. Peter notes that those who blaspheme God by maligning Christians for their desire to live righteously, will also have to give an account of themselves to the one just judge who stands ready and able to judge both the living and the dead. Now I want to pause here. I didn't write this in, but I, I, I need to say this. Look, the church is guilty of just fire and brimstone, almost like we get enjoyment out of the fact that some people will not be saved. Now, that's the wrong answer. But the church has also been guilty on this side of the spectrum for not dealing with judgment at all. I wonder if we can fall somewhere in the center and say judgment is a reality. Judgment transcends the parting of the sheep and the goats because judgment gives birth to the new Jerusalem. And apart from God's righteous judgment, there cannot be an eschatological future. We do mourn those who won't. John says that it's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach, the reality of the future judgment of God. Do our hearts ache? Or do we sit idly by and do nothing to evangelize and then secretly champion their eternal separation from the Father? We can do better, church, when we talk about judgment. Humanity will not have the last word. They didn't get the last word in regard to the life of Christ. They're not going to get the last word in regard to our lives. That's the hope of the gospel. We can be confident in one thing. We can be confident in that. Amen? Read this last verse as we prepare to close it out this morning. Consider the pagans in the first century throughout history, for all I care, who stand or stood in opposition to the bride of Christ. From their perspective, it would appear that the gospel has no lasting effect. I mean, we're talking about a human horizontal perspective here. And you actually have to listen to them when they're articulating their view. You can't just believe that you know it. That's arrogance. Why would they think this? Well, because ultimately Christians experience physical death just like everyone else. I thought you were going to live eternally. It's a massive misunderstanding where we talk past one another and there's no hope of actual understanding. However, as previously stated, death is not the final word for the people of God. 
For Peter, this is why the gospel was preached. The gospel is the antidote. The text of scripture in Romans and Corinthians says that death spread to all men. Therefore, Peter sees physical death as God's judgment against the flesh, and rightly so. This leaves us with one final question to answer. What is the hope of the gospel? What is the hope of the gospel? Is it the reality of being born again so that we might live for God now, or is it simply tied to a future resurrection? Well, how about we say it's a little bit of both and so much more? Want to have a cup of coffee, drink a beer, and talk about it? Do you want to? Because I would love to share with you the reality of the gospel. You can malign me and make fun of me and challenge me. I would still love to share the hope of the gospel. Theologically speaking, the teaching in the New Testament is that judgment is predicated on the gospel. Peter writes that humanity will be judged according to what we have done. The most important thing that we can do is properly respond to the message of the gospel. If there is a proper response, then there is an improper response. We've talked about this. The greatest thing we can do as humans is properly respond to the good news of God. The gospel is preached to those who are now dead because it is the only source of hope for those of us who desire to live in the spirit the way God does. We said it earlier. Do we want to withstand? Do we want to hold fast? Do we want to endure? Well, what's the hope? Is my hope grounded in the fact that actually nothing existed that I had to do? Historically speaking, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The perfect atoning sacrificial lamb of God. One time paid for all sin. Why did he do it? So that he could bring us back to God. Well, if God exists, that sounds pretty nice. Right? That on my behalf, he stepped into human form so that he could do the thing that I couldn't do. And he did it willingly. He suffered in his body, scourged, shamed, mock trial, crucified, abandoned, and betrayed. For you and me. When we did nothing to deserve it. And to prove his power, to give us hope. To prove his power over death, to offer us hope. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead physically so that we could say, if he did it for him, he can do it for me. And it doesn't stop there because Jesus showed himself to more than 500, he consumed food, he loved on those who loved him, he pursued relationship with them even after being resurrected. He didn't just vanish. Then he ascended, he went through the heavens, think ancient Near Eastern cosmology, and he proclaimed victory when he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, where we are told that at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. They'll confess Jesus to the glory of God. And because he was exalted, all angels, authorities, and powers, both seen and unseen, have been subjected to him. Do you want to worship someone? Worship the creator, not the created. That's the glory of the gospel. You need hope? That's it. If God did it for him, he can do it for me. Therefore, I can endure. Therefore, I can hold fast. Therefore, I can withstand whatever life has to throw at me. Death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, exaltation. Our destiny awaits us. And it starts with death. So live now. We began this morning's Bible study by saying that Peter's secondary objective was to encourage the early church. I hope that you are encouraged today. 
so that you can withstand, so that you can overcome the same way they did, because we are the byproduct of their endurance. God will have the final say. He exemplified that in Christ. His verdict at the final judgment will stand. He is the only just judge. And this is why we preach the gospel, knowing that we have been judged in the flesh. We believe that the gospel is the only antidote for those of us who desire to live in the spirit both now and for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. For the opportunity to just plumb the depths of the scriptures. To ask the question, why should I have hope? And to be given what I believe is a clear answer. Suffering is the pathway to glory. And God, I want to exist in the presence of your glory forever. So I will follow in the path that you trailblazed for me to walk. I pray that we would lay aside weights. That we would focus our attention on you. That we would have a desire to hear from you and to respond to you. That we would embrace the transformation and not reject it or rebel against it. That we would die to the things that are sinful and that we would live for the will of God. That we would love you and that we would love others well. And that we would be known by that love. Therefore, the world might consider you as the only viable option. God, we thank you and we praise you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen.